Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, a journalist with over two decades of experience. I started coming crypto six years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. Sign up for the Unchained Daily newsletter, where you will get all of the top crypto news of the day. Also in the daily, you can find out how to pre-order my book, The Cryptopians, Idealism, Greed, Lies, and the Making of the First Big Cryptocurrency Craze. Head to UnchainedPodcast.com and the sign up for the email newsletter is right on the homepage. Tezos is smart money that's redefining what it means to hold and exchange value in a digitally connected world. Discover how people are reimagining the world around you on Tezos. Today's episode is sponsored by EY Blockchain. Ernst & Young is committed to supporting integration of the world's business ecosystems on the public Ethereum blockchain. The Crypto.com app lets you buy, earn, and spend crypto all in one place. Earn up to 8.5% interest on your Bitcoin and 14% interest on your stablecoins, paid weekly. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 with the code LAURA. The link is in the description. Today's guest is Nick Shimano, founder at One Confirmation. Welcome, Nick. How's it going, Laura? Good to see you. Nice to see you. You just closed your third round. Congratulations. It's a $125 million new venture fund. But before we get into that, since we've actually never had you on the show for a long interview just about you, why don't you tell us about your background and One Confirmation? Sure. So my background... I kind of fell down the rabbit hole back in 2013, and um, I was just a random person on the internet in Portland, Maine. And a lot of people talk about, you know, why they fell down the rabbit hole, whether it's for technology or economics. And for me, what initially drew me was kind of the social movement that I saw happening online back then. I, like a lot of people, read this Wired article about this magic internet money that was being used to buy guns and drugs on Silk Road. You know, that was the early media narrative, as you well know. And I, I think, wasn't it a Gawker article or maybe maybe it was a different one? There were a few. I, th- I think, <laughs> you know, different publications were writing about it at that okay. time to get clicks. And I've always been an online community person. So dating back to like middle school when I was interested in comic books, high school when I was interested in sneakers, I've always wanted to dive online to online forums to see kind of who was talking about things that I was interested in. So when I first read this article... I was intrigued. Um, I jumped onto Bitcoin Talk, which is you know, the first uh, online forum that Satoshi actually created, and uh, r slash Bitcoin. And what I saw was kind of underneath the surface of the media headlines, there was this really passionate community of people from around the world who weren't aligned by physical location, meaning they were, you know, they weren't in any one particular location, um, but they were aligned by a shared belief system, meaning they all kind of believed in the values of Bitcoin. And uh, economic incentives, meaning they all own Bitcoin. And to me, what got me so excited was when I saw these uh, people forming based on you know values and economics, and um, I saw a social movement happening. And that's when I kind of 
decided I want to do something in crypto, talked to uh, you know every different founder in the space. At this time, you know, I was uh, meeting with, uh, you know, the BitInstant team in New York City and Skyping with uh, Mt. Gox. You know, these were some of the early leaders uh, at the time. And uh, you know, I connected with Brian and Fred of Coinbase. And um, actually, I was one of the first uh, couple hundred users of Coinbase product, uh, which kind of led me there, reached out to Brian and then joined shortly after that. So that's kind of how I, you know, long-winded way of telling you how I got in the, the crypto space and kind of what drew me. And uh, yeah, I had a great experience at Coinbase and back in 2017, started one confirmation and here we are. And so far across your two previous funds, you had raised $70 million. What has your investment thesis been over time and how have your bets played out? So our thesis is very simple. Uh, back kind of authentic founders that have deep historical context on crypto that are building products that we understand as users. I think like there's a ton of different ways to make money in crypto. For for us, uh, we've kind of stuck to what we understand and what we get excited about as users. And that has uh, has treated us well. And that's kind of, kind of what we're going to continue to do. I think there's you know a lot of investors in the space that are trading based on memes or, uh, you know, fundamentals or, uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of ways to, to make money. But for us, it's products that we get excited about as users. And again, that's kind of what led me to Coinbase uh, back in 2013. You know, I, back then I was buying uh, Bitcoin by uh, taking out cash from an ATM, wiring it to Mt.Gox via Western Union. And that was, you know, the the best way to buy Bitcoin at that time, right? And then Coinbase came along and was just this product that made it dead simple. And, you know, that that's kind of what drew me. And so we kind of let the products guide our investment thinking. And, um, and yeah, that's it's gone, you know, pretty well. I mean, it's kind of allowed us to invest in DeFi before DeFi was a category, NFTs before NFTs was a category. And um, yeah, now these categories are, of course, very hot, but we're kind of thinking about, you know, what's next? I think by focusing on product, it allows you to kind of ignore a lot of the noise in the space. That's really interesting. Yeah, I, I have plenty of questions for you about NFTs and DeFi, because obviously I did see you were so early on those trends. As for this latest fund of $125 million, what do you plan to do with that money? Uh, we're going to continue, you know, the strategy that we we have been executing, which is, you know, invest in companies, cryptocurrencies, and uh, and NFTs as well. We tend to focus on uh, bleeding edge technologies, right? So we like to be early money in at the kind of pre-seed or seed stage and write checks, you know, anywhere between a million and three million. Um, and we also take kind of core cryptocurrency positions. So um, that's kind of the strategy that that we've been executing. And yeah, the new fund, um, it's really just a continuation of what we've been doing. Um, and, it, you know, it's a slightly bigger fund. So, um, you know, some of the, the sizes of investments and things like that may increase a little, but, you know, we really just want to kind of continue what we're doing. Um, I think focus has, has treated us well. All right. So let's talk about NFTs. As we mentioned, you were very early on the NFT bandwagon and I have been noticing um, you've, you know, invested in kind of a diversity of different NFT plays. There's OpenSea, which is a bigger platform, SuperWare, which is pretty focused. Um, Fort or Forte, I'm not sure how to say that. 
Um, so first of all, let's just, you know, talk NFTs generally. Why do you think they've taken off so much in the last several months? Well, I think they're bringing new people into the space uh, in a way that nothing else in cryptocurrency has, right? Like I've been waiting for, uh, you know, my brother, for example, who's like outside of crypto and, uh, you know, isn't that interested in finance to, uh, you know, to get excited about crypto. And that's happened with, you know, something like Top Shots, right? So kind of NFTs uh, are bringing in people who are interested in sports or music or art, uh, you know, culture outside of crypto in a way that nothing else has. Up until NFTs, it was very kind of finance, money, and certainly kind of finance, money is part of NFTs as well. Um, you know, it, it is for a lot of people still about, uh, you know, making money, but it's kind of combining, uh, you know, finance and culture in a really uh, exciting way. And I think it's just getting started. Like, NFTs right now are mostly just kind of static files um, that you can't do much with, right? You can show them off in your home on a digital frame, or you could show them off on your OpenSea profile, but you can't use them in, you know, virtual worlds or in games and things like that. And and I think that stuff's all coming. But yeah, I think what really catalyzed it in the past six months was just so much culture coming in and and making money. And um, so. Yeah, to be clear, it's still, you know, mostly about making money now, but it's it's kind of combining culture and money in a fun way. Yeah, I, it's interesting that you say that because this also is the first time I got my sister interested in a crypto and she's an entrepreneur in fashion. And yeah, uh, NFTs are <laughs> also what finally drew her because otherwise my whole family was like, why are you always talking about this stuff? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And particularly, I would add what I, what I really love about it is it enables a new business model for creatives, right? And like, I've always thought that, you know, the first couple hundred million people that get into crypto, it would be, uh, they would buy it and invest in it. Um, but like the, you know, the billions of people that come in, I think their first way is going to be earning it. And so how easy it is for, you know, a creator to go on, uh, you know, OpenSea and use their create tool to sell an NFT um, or, you know, a, a really talented artist to go on super rare and, and sell kind of a, you know, a premium piece of crypto art like that, that is really powerful. And it's bringing in new people, uh, f- you know, to earn rather than to uh, to invest or to speculate. And that's that's super exciting to me. So it's interesting that we're talking about this because I did see that you did tell The New York Times that we're in an NFT bubble and also, the, um, I saw you told Cheddar that there will be a secondary market, but you also said, quote, well, some of the stuff that's getting bought now at millions of dollars go down in value. I would say so. So w- kind of where do you see this vision with NFTs going? Do you expect a lot of these buyers will make money or is it just mostly the creators that will? Or how will this kind of market end up, you know, looking a few years down the line? I think... It's, you know, the bubble is better for creators than retail speculators, right? What I like about this NFT bubble is it's like, you know, it's artists and, and creatives, and it's not like opportunistic business people for the most part that are like, you know, launching a hundred million dollar ICO, right? So it's, but I, but I think there are a lot of parallels to the, you know, 2017 ICO boom in that, you know, there's kind of an explosion of people creating 
Um, and there's an explosion of kind of retail demand to invest in these things. And, you know, just like in uh, 2017, we saw, you know, Floyd Mayweather, you know, endorsing ICOs. Now we're seeing uh, a different iteration of, you know, celebrities that are launching NFTs. And I think it's not to write them all off. Um, I think there are some that kind of understand what's happening um, and are doing it in an authentic way that I think could create long-term value for the retail investors that are investing in these things. But I think there's also a lot of, you know, cash grabs just like there were in, in 2017. So yeah, I would say there's probably uh, a small percentage of the NFTs being created right now that, that I would say will have, you know, long-term value. That said, just like in 2017, where a lot of these, you know, what, what seemed like scams, you know, they're still here. And that could, the same could happen for, for NFTs, right? Because value is just about belief. And if you have people believing that these things have value, um, then they're going to continue to have value. Well, so I know that as an investor, this may not be your area exactly, but I'm sure you've thought about this. And I just wondered... You know, at this moment, as you mentioned, NFTs tend to be pretty static. There isn't a lot people can do with them. Um, and so that kind of leads us to this moment where the main use case is speculation. But I was just wondering over time, what do you think will eventually make a good NFT or what sort of creative things do you see coming down the pike that you expect will become bigger trends? Uh, well, one thing I'm super excited about is, you know, NFTs within uh, virtual worlds, right? The metaverse, which, you know, a lot of people are, are excited about. You know, a, a recent example uh, is MeBits, which, you know, you probably saw a project launched by the Larva Labs team, uh, you know, the same team behind uh, CryptoPunks. And I think, you know, I'm not sure that MeBits is going to be kind of, you know, the winner here, but... The idea of like a 3D avatar that you can use as your avatar within a virtual world, uh, as opposed to a static uh, image that you could use maybe as a, you know, your avi on Twitter, for example, uh, I think that's a step in the right direction. So I think kind of uh, NFTs that you can use within virtual worlds, either as your identity or maybe, you know, to compete, you know, to play games and things like that. That's uh, super exciting. I mean, a lot, you know, a lot of the NFT OGs remember the, you know, when CryptoKitties uh, launched and there was an ecosystem, that, a small ecosystem that emerged on top where you could uh, race your CryptoKitty, right? Um, I forget what the name of that project was, but uh, that was pretty cool. And I think we're going to start, we're already seeing that with things like Zed Run. I'm not sure if you've looked at that or covered that in the no, past, but that's gotten a lot of excitement. It's basically uh, virtual horses that you can collect oh, and then yeah. compete in horse races. So this type of thing, I think, is still incredibly early. And I think when you can, you know, we see the attachment people have to have to their NFTs now when it's just a static file. But imagine when you can actually use these to compete and to make more money and things like that. That's super exciting. And so as we mentioned earlier, you have invested in these different types of platforms. You know, for instance, OpenSea is kind of like a catch-all platform. And then there are others like SuperWare that are focused on a specific niche. How do you think competition between these types of platforms will shake out? Um, well, I think I get asked this question a lot because there's a lot of new 
NFT marketplaces popping up. And I think really just like any other type of marketplace, the, the long-term differentiation is kind of brand uh, and product. I think that's how they're all competing right now. So OpenSea, for example, you know, has a really strong brand as kind of the leading secondary marketplace for NFTs, and they have a really good product. And they've kind of innovated uh, on product, you know, at a really fast clip and added features that users want and really and, and stayed focused on that. So there's definitely, you know, an opportunity for other marketplaces focused on kind of other niches to build their brand around that niche, uh, maybe focus on primary rather than secondary and build a really good product. And that's kind of, uh, that's happening, right? We're starting to see marketplaces for, uh, you know, music NFTs or different types of uh, sports NFTs. And I think that's just going to continue. But yeah, at the end of the day, I think it's like to win as an NFT marketplace, you really, you know, you need to focus on building a really strong brand. And there's a lot of ways to differentiate your brand and build a great product. So in a way, maybe what you're describing is that some of the specialized ones will be kind of like more primary sales and then uh, something like an open sea will be more focused on secondary sales. Is that kind of where you were going with that? Well, that is the case, right? So, so open sea is like why they've really uh, succeeded is they've been a general purpose platform for all NFTs, right? And they've, Devin and Alex are really tapped into what's happening in NFTs and they've been really quick to add new NFT projects, right? So for example, you know, a couple of weeks ago, MeBits launched and MeBits very quickly was added to the OpenSea platform and very quickly tens of millions of dollars worth of secondary trading was happening on OpenSea. The whole OpenSea business, you know, the reason why they launched it in the first place is CryptoKitties popped up and uh, CryptoKitties was charging something like 5% to buy, uh, you know, on the CryptoKitties marketplace. And what makes an NFT, right? At the end of the day, it's true ownership. So the idea of like a marketplace controlling the buying and selling of that NFT doesn't make a ton of sense. OpenSea saw that. They launched, a, you know, a secondary marketplace and um, they decided to charge 2.5% uh, instead of 5%, you know, percent, right? So that's kind of the open sea business, but there is room for a primary marketplaces. Um, I, I tend to think open sea for a secondary marketplace, open sea uh, is likely the winner. I'm, I think open sea is going to be a multi-billion dollar company. You know, if you look at their uh, GMV gross merchandise value over the past three months, it's been over a hundred million. Um, they're going to have their biggest month ever this month. That's open sea. But I think, you know, like we just invested in a marketplace for uh, music NFTs. I think music NFTs are going to start uh, exploding. So far, it's really been uh, visual creators that are really capitalizing on this. But imagine when uh, audio creators, and, and there are some that are doing like, you know, Blau, he's created some awesome kind of uh, audio plus visual stuff. But I, I'm pretty excited about just purely uh, audio NFTs really exploding in activity. And, you know, we just invested in a, a platform that's doing primary audio uh, NFTs uh, and building a strong brand around that because they understand the music space really well. They're going to curate to get really high-end, you know, emerging artists on the platform and things like that. So. And so what does that look like? Because I 
in a way, I, it's funny because the logical side of my brain still feels like it doesn't get NFTs. And yet when the Kings of Leon NFT was announced, I was like, I have to have that. <laughs> and so on, like a cer- yeah, yeah. I even, nice. and by the way, I paid $90 in gas fees for a $65 yeah. NFT. But yep. anyway, I, um, so I, you know, obviously I seem to get it on an emotional level. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I was wondering for these music NFTs, are they going to be based on scarcity or is it still going to be something, you know, like the Kings of Leon NFT, I could get that on my Apple music. So like, yep. like, and yet at the same time, I felt the need to buy the NFTs. So, um, so I was wondering, you know, just for these music NFTs that you're talking about, are they ones that, you know, people will be able to get through their subscription music service or will it be something that is scarce? So I think collecting NFTs is all about authentic ownership, right? It's not about owning a, like a, a piece of music that no one else can listen to, but it, it's owning the true creation that was created by the artist that you love. That is the case with digital art, right? Like this uh, Robbie Barat, I own this. Um, anyone could show that off in a digital frame, but only I own the authentic version of that, right? And I think if Robbie Brock grows in uh, importance in the world, then there will be demand in the future for uh, authentic ownership. And so that it's the same is true with, with music. Like what I like about a catalog is the name of this uh, marketplace that we uh, recently invested in catalog.works. And what I like about this marketplace is the team behind it is really plugged into indie music, right? And like indie music is not uh, well-suited for like the existing platforms. Like if you're uh, someone brand new, um, Spotify, it's really hard to get distribution on Spotify. And SoundCloud, like five years ago, used to be really good for this, but SoundCloud also changed their algorithm. And so for like brand new artists, it's hard uh, to break through and and connect with your fans. And, And I think there's an opportunity for a new kind of indie music discovery platform. And so what Catalog is doing is kind of, trying to bootstrap this new you know, discovery platform with a business model that can get these uh, artists who have maybe 10 fans, but that really love them, that are willing to pay $1,000 for their, their authentic piece. So the hope is when, like I've, I've started collecting stuff on catalog for some you know, new artists that I love. And for me, it's not because I like want to be the only one to listen to this or it's the music is scarce. It's because the authentic ownership is scarce. And I hope that the artists that I buy on catalog end up blowing up, getting huge on Spotify. And then I think there's going to be more demand for like that authentic, you know, first work that they dropped on catalog. You know what I mean? Uh, okay. Right. Right. Yeah. It's like having a signed version of the book or something. Yep. That, right. Yep. Okay. <laughs> Obviously, I've been talking about this on my show for months now, and I still have heard of me as like, wait, why do these have value? <laughs> well, one thing I've written a blog post about this, and I think this is uh, th- this can be a helpful mental model. It's like humans fundamentally desire what others desire, and they desire what's scarce. And like, you think about you know if you own a house, right? I mean, part of owning a house is, you know, you want to show it off to your friends and your neighbors or whatever. When you own a house, you you show it off to a very limited number of people. Owning an NFT, it's kind of, it's this global thing that you could show it off to the world. And so I think that explains why, like, 
people are willing to pay millions of dollars. I know people that have paid millions of dollars for CryptoPunks that, you know, that don't own their house. And I think that's part of it. It's, it's this like kind of belief that more and more people in the future will desire this thing. And it's at like a global scale uh, in a way that even like home ownership isn't. So I'm kind of very bullish on the long-term value of, of kind of very uh, blue chip or high-end NFTs. I think you talk about a bubble. I think just like, uh, you know, in 2017, like there were the high quality, you know, assets were good buys even at that time. I think kind of the same is likely to be true about NFTs. Because again, it's just like, why do any, why does any cryptocurrency have value? It's belief. It's the fact that people, other people desire these things. Once the desire, uh, you know, gets going, it, it can, especially with like internet-based products, get really big. Yeah. I mean, obviously the difference with uh, these cryptocurrencies is that they have utility, like Bitcoin has utility, Ether has utility. And yet at the same time, I while you were talking, I just had this vision of Instagram feeds, right? It's like people kind of show off their experiences, but now with NFTs, they'll sort of show off their possessions. And I think mm -hmm. it's like a different way of showing status. Which, yeah. I, you know, I, now that I think about it, I, I did see some commentary saying NFTs are basically a way to show status. And I think maybe the more I think about it, maybe that's what it is. But anyway, I, I like it, it's a hugely um, fascinating thing to me because obviously this just has taken off. It's gotten a bunch of non-crypto friends of mine interested. <laughs> um, yeah. And yeah, like I said, the logical side of my brain is like, why? I don't get it. But, um. <laughs> but just to challenge you on that, I mean, there certainly are some cryptocurrencies now that have utility and that a lot of people are using. But, uh, you know, Cardano has a $75 billion market cap right now, right? Is that is that because Cardano has utility, ADA or whatever their cryptocurrency is? <laughs> you know, this is a good question because every time I, well, not, I, I don't know if every time, but often when I tweet now, I get spammed by these Cardano supporters who want me to do an interview on, uh, on, yeah. And so it, I mean, it's fascinating, you know, another good example is Dogecoin. <laughs> mm -hmm, exactly. Yeah. I mean, these cryptocurrency, it's belief, right? The Why, why is everyone spamming you uh, about Cardano? It's not because these Cardano is useful to these people. It's because they own it and they believe it's valuable and they believe it's going to increase in value and they want you to talk about it. Right. So I think uh, NFTs are, a good uh, parallel. It's like, it's the meme. Um, but I think it's even more uh, interesting because there's actually like a human creator behind it uh, as opposed to these cryptocurrencies. So I actually think people could feel more attachment to a lot of these NFTs than they do, uh, you know, these cryptocurrencies. But we'll yeah. See. Yeah. I, I could see that. That makes sense. Um, so I want to ask you a question about two people that I think you know well, who were recently on my show, Mark Cuban, who is an investor in One Confirmation, and Devin Finzer, the co-founder and CEO of OpenSea. And so Mark told me that his light bulb moment around NFTs was when he realized that creators could get royalties in perpetuity off the secondary sales. And then later when I interviewed Devin, he said he thought people would try to get around paying those royalties and that basically like that's not going to be a thing kind of. I don't know if he went that far, but, he, you know, he kind of said like the likelihood you're going to get the royalties as a creator is, you know, you you may not get them. 
So I was just mm-hmm. curious to hear your take. How do you think that's going to play out? Do you expect that buyers will uh, try to pay that cut to the creators or that they'll try to circumvent that? Um, I think there's definitely, I mean, the data has already shown that there are, there are collectors that want to honor that, right? And so Super Rare, for example, has paid out millions of dollars in, in royalties to crypto artists on Super Rare. So I think that's an important thing. Um, it's hard to enforce, right? Because again, an NFT is about uh, true ownership and you know people being able to do whatever they want with it. And so there may always be a marketplace that allows you to to buy and sell it without giving that artist the royalty. And there's probably a segment of people that will always want uh, to do that uh, on the buyer side. But look, I, particularly on Super Rare, I can just say like there's a collector community that really values what the artists are doing and uh, appreciates artists' work and and wants to support artists. And it is uh, really powerful that, you know, an artist, you know, if we ever sell this Robbie Barat, you know, Robbie will get a, you know, a significant cut of that. And, and Robbie himself has already made, uh, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in, in royalties from secondary sales on, you know, on super rare. So I would say it's definitely happening. I think it's going to continue to be kind of a thing, um, how big it is and how, how much people actually honor that? I'm not exactly sure. So, just for the people listening on audio, Nick, uh, when he references this, he keeps pointing to a framed <laughs> um, painting behind you. But I realize now it must be digital because I see a cord hanging from it. So, is yes. that an NFT? And then that was a physical version that you got as for buying no, the NFT. This is a, oh, digital, a digital frame. Digital. So, this is called a mural canvas two. Uh, which you could buy um, for, you know, 400 bucks and, you know, put it on your wall and show off your, you know, your NFT collection. So, you know, you download an app and yeah, I basically have an app that I can change it and uh, and it's fun, right? I can show off my, there's a Coldy Vitalik, uh, which is one of my favorites. Wait, a what type of Vitalik? Coldy is an, is one of kind of the OG crypto artists. He's a, he's an awesome uh, artist. He's one of the, and one of the first creators on Super Rare as well. So this is one of uh, his, his best works in my opinion. Oh, wow. Yeah. People, if you're listening on audio, you should come check out the video to see this version of Vitalik. (laughs) It looks like, yeah, like a a video game version of Vitalik or something. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So in a moment, we're going to have one more question about NFTs that I, I'm curious about, but first a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Tezos lets you easily exchange smart money throughout our digital world. A self-upgradable blockchain with a proven track record, Tezos seamlessly adopts tomorrow's innovations without network disruptions today. Because of this adaptability, engineers, conservationists, entrepreneurs, collectors, game developers, and artists from around the world are building, creating, and using Tezos every day. Discover how people are reimagining the world around you on Tezos. With over 10 million users, Crypto.com is the easiest place to buy and sell over 90 cryptocurrencies. Download the Crypto.com app now and get $25 with the code LAURA. If you're a hodler, Crypto.com Earn pays industry-leading interest rates on over 30 coins, including Bitcoin at up to 8.5% interest and up to 14% interest on your stablecoins. 
When it's time to spend your crypto, nothing beats the Crypto.com Visa card, which pays you up to 8% back instantly and gives you 100% rebate for your Netflix, Spotify, and Amazon Prime subscriptions. There is no annual or monthly fees to worry about. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 when using the code LAURA, L-A-U-R-A. The link is in the description. Today's episode is sponsored by EY Blockchain. Ernst & Young is committed to supporting integration of the world's business ecosystems on the public Ethereum blockchain. Join our fifth annual Blockchain Summit and Education Series on May 18th to 21st for a deep dive into zero-knowledge privacy technologies, accounting, and tax rules, as well as the future of finance. Sign up and learn more at ey.com slash global blockchain summit or blockchain.ey.com. Back to my conversation with Nick Tomato. So one other thing that has been happening now that NFTs are taking off and normies are entering crypto is that we've seen a lot of pushback against proof-of-work mining increase. And I wondered, how do you see these environmental concerns affecting mainstream adoption? And what do you think is the best way to address that? All cryptocurrencies are narrative-based. And I think this is a narrative that is certainly uh, picking up steam. And it's particularly picked up steam within the uh, the art community. It kind of, you know, with Elon's tweet, uh, you know, last week, it's it's gotten even crazier. But a couple of months ago, there was a lot uh, within the crypto art community, actually, uh, you know, talking about this. And artists tend to, I think, be socially minded and um, and they actually were, you know, we're talking about this first. And, you know, there was a segment of Ethereum artists who left to, uh, you know, to go to a platform on Tezos, for example, because, you know, Ethereum is still proof of work and, and Tezos is proof of stake. So I'm TBD on like how big of a impact this has in the long term. Wait, because I, Ethereum's moving to proof of stake or why? Well, I, I just mean like people caring about this environmental proof of work narrative generally. Like, Wait, really? I'm, I feel like it's just getting worse. Well, it, it seems to be right now, but I don't know. I'm, it seems to be particularly from people that don't like Bitcoin that, um, you know, or don't see uh, value in Bitcoin. And I, I listened to actually part of your podcast uh, last week. I think you had some really good guys, forget who. Oh, who, Alex uh, and talk. Alex Gladstein and James McGinnis talking about uh, proof of work and the environmental impact. Yes. Yeah. 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 That was great a great show. podcast. Yeah. If people um, miss that, they should listen to that. And again, I don't like, I, I spend all my time on uh, like new products and cryptocurrency. So I don't understand much of what's going on or have t- much time to devote to uh, environmental stuff. But from my perspective, it's a narrative um, that people seem to care about at this current moment. But the main reason they care about it is because they don't see utility in Bitcoin. And so I think as more people care about Bitcoin and more people around the world recognize, uh, you know, the utility of, of Bitcoin, I think that, you know, that the narrative could die. I mean, one thing I was thinking about is like, if you think about Tesla, right? Tesla, obviously, you know, electric cars, better for the environment. But why do people buy Teslas? I'm sure there are some people that buy it for that, but like, you know, I have a Tesla. I, I have a lot of friends that have Teslas 
And all the people I know, they didn't buy it because, you know, it's great for the environment. They bought it because it's a great product. Uh, and it's great that it's great for the environment, but it's a very, I mean, compared to any other car, it, it, it's just the best product, I think. You know, I think in the long run, the best products will win and the, uh, you know, the environmental stuff will will prove to be a bit overblown. Um, that's my kind of view. I I also recognize that environmental issues are, are becoming increasingly important and this could be kind of a blind spot for me, but that's yeah, kind of my view. Yeah, I, I will have to disagree with you. So we'll have to check back in a few years because from my perspective, I think that people are viewing climate change as becoming a worse problem that should have been addressed longer ago. And so the more time that elapses with it not being addressed, the worse the problem gets and the harder it is to fix it. So I feel like kind of the desperation of people who care about that issue is getting even stronger moment by moment. I mean, now with this new administration being more friendly to environmental initiatives, um, that might lessen. But yeah, um, so we'll have to see how this plays out. But I don't disagree with that, though. But but I think what I'm saying is that, like, you know, a lot of people that are saying this about Bitcoin don't understand the facts of what actually is better for the environment. Like, uh, you know, the, the traditional fiat system and payment infrastructure or Bitcoin. Like, there's no doubt that people are going to increasingly care about the environment. But I just think the the narrative, uh, the reality is different than the narrative. And and as the product of Bitcoin proves to be more and more useful, the mainstream kind of perception of that will uh, adjust for that. That's kind of... Yeah. Yeah. And actually, um, this goes back to that episode that you referred to, because in that episode, Alex Gladstein of the Human Rights Foundation gives a really detailed description of how the US dollar is essentially something called a petrodollar, and how um, it's basically fossil fuel money. <laughs> and yep. so, um, so it is uh, interesting that Bitcoin is taking the brunt of this criticism when actually the U.S. dollar um, really is heavily tied to fossil fuels. So, um, all right. So let's switch tacks. Um, we we kind of keep going off on tangents. So I have mm-hmm. a whole host of other topics I wanted to touch on. So Ethereum is facing issues with scaling to layer two quickly enough to meet demand. And I don't know if you saw this tweets from that Kane Warwick of Synthetics had in it. He talked about how this this problem has given a foothold to competitors like Binance Smart Chain and Solana. And I wondered, you know, for you as an investor, like how are you and your portfolio companies thinking about how to scale? Like there's this period now where kind of DeFi is a bit fragmented in layer two. So are you advising portfolio companies to all try to go on the same layer two? Are you having them check out building on other protocols entirely? Or, you know, what? how, how do you think this period is going to play out? Well, I would say um, it reminds me a lot of kind of the 2015-16 era of kind of, of crypto where there was Bitcoin that was working really well. They had a really passionate community of people. Um, and then something else came along like you know, Ethereum that uh, you know the tribal Bitcoiners didn't like and thought everything was going to happen on Bitcoin. And you know, people are still, I think there's p- still people out there that are wait- waiting for Rootstock or some of these side chains initiatives, right? There's still people that think uh, DeFi is going to happen on, on Bitcoin. And it, it, it just shows you how 
uh, biased people are and and how tribal people in crypto are, right? So um, I use that example to say like, look, I th- we're incredibly bullish on Ethereum and the Ethereum ecosystem. Pretty much everything we've invested in as a fund to date, uh, all the applications have been on Ethereum um, and, and it's working really well. Um, but I'm not someone who thinks everything is going to happen on Ethereum, right? That view uh, gets you a lot of likes uh, on Twitter. It's kind of playing the, the card of the tribe, right? But um, but I think what, one thing I've always liked about Ethereum is kind of a more open ethos. And while there are some of these tribal people, uh, you know, within, I mean, like Vitalik is not himself tribal at all. And, and the culture of Ethereum is more open and inclusive and, it, and it's always been. And so I hope the Ethereum community can um, kind of follow uh, Vitalik's lead on that and be open-minded to, you know, the idea of, of not everything happening on Ethereum. I think just like in 2016, like there are a lot of, you know, some promising initiatives at the layer two um, that are bringing scalability to Ethereum and some of that stuff may happen. It's probably going to take a lot longer than, you know, we think. And I think if you're a, uh, you know, a, a crypto art marketplace that where people are buying piece of crypto art for thousands of dollars, then paying 50 or $90 for a transaction is okay, right? Um, but, you know, for, for a $100, uh, you know, asset within a game or something, it's just not viable. I don't want to dismiss Layer 2 because Matic, we have a few portfolio companies in particular that are using Matic right now. And, um, you know, well, Polygon. I think, Polygon, yeah, every, everyone still says Matic, but... <laughs> right. um, it's a it's a but, more unique name, but anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, but yeah, we're very excited about uh, other layer one chains like Polkadot and Cosmos that um, are bringing in new developers and enabling enabling new use cases that uh, Ethereum simply can't uh, support right now, right? And um, those use cases, uh, the naysayers will say, "Well, where are those new use cases?" You know, these platforms have been around for many years now. But um, but it, it feels to me like we're still kind of we're in like the 2017 period for Ethereum, where back in 2017, it was all speculation. There wasn't uh, billions of dollars uh, tied up, uh, you know, in in, uh, in Ethereum smart contracts. I think we're kind of in that period for other layer ones. Um, and I think it's still uh, I'm, I'm open minded, like I, I don't have a strong view on you know, which of those are going to uh, to win. How I think about it is that it's likely going to be a platform that offers something kind of new and different. So I don't love when I hear like a, a platform just talking about scalability benefits and just like kind of executing the Ethereum idea better. What I'm most excited about is like kind of new ideas that are pushing the space forward in different ways. So what I mean by this, I mean, one example is uh, is governance, right? Like Polkadot has a this radical approach to on-chain governance. And, uh, you know, Ethereum is, is all about governance minimization, right? And kind of Vitalik has, has never uh, been in favor of, of kind of on-chain governance. And I think something like Polkadot and their radical approach to on-chain governance is this kind of fundamentally new idea to crypto that is pushing the space forward, whereas something like 
Binance Smart Chain or Solana, they're really copying Ethereum and just trying to do it better. And I don't think that's uh, likely to, to really uh, you know, push the space forward and win in the long term, although I could be wrong. Oh, this is this is so fascinating. Everything that you just said. So a couple of different questions. So first of all, um, earlier when you said that some of your portfolio companies were on Polygon or Matic, um, is that because you kind of tried to get a bunch of them onto the same layer too? Um, like, do you feel that this period where the, um, you know, different uh, smart contracts can be fragmented on different layer twos is a problem? No, um, no, like we don't really push. I mean, we'll give our feedback, but like we we let, uh, you know, our, our portfolio companies kind of do their own thing, right? So we're not necessarily uh, directing uh, them to any one, you know, layer two. What I would say is uh, I'm pretty excited about bridges that it kind of make layer twos interoperable. Actually, one of our portfolio companies started as a Ethereum, um, which was a smart contract wallet, and they've kind of pivoted uh, to creating uh, Hop Exchange, which is kind of a bridge uh, that connects, that makes it, you know, easy to go from one layer two to another. And I think that's something that, you know, that, that is interesting and that could play out. And Hop's not the only one. There's another one, I think, called uh, Connects. So there are teams that are working on like making this seamless. And I think, I think the truth is there's not, there's not one layer two solution that has uh, enough uh, kind of momentum that there's one clear one to go to, right? They all have different trade-offs. Um, you know, like DYDX is uh, in in our fund one. Um, you know, I, I know you've had Antonio on before. Yeah, one of the one of the most underrated products in DeFi, I think. And they're they're building on Starkware, right? And Starkware has its own set of uh, pros and cons that um, that uh, you know Antonio really liked. So I think it's it's still kind of wide open, and uh, I'm all for kind of different experimentation, and I, I think that in the long run, uh, it's possible that they are connected. Um, but it may be clunky. It may, uh, you know, make sense to be on another chain as well. Like I'm not, I'm not someone that thinks everything needs to be on, on Ethereum. Although I do think Ethereum has the best, as good a chance of any as being the long-term winner. Okay. Yeah. That, that, that was my other question for you is just, it sort of seems like what you're saying is that you feel like, for for a smart contract platform that Ethereum kind of has the lead and that it's going to be hard for anybody else to take that mantle. And so that's why for anything else, like you wouldn't, you know, if you're going to invest in something that even seems slightly competitive, it has to have a, a different feature, like what you were saying about Polkadot and its governance. Is that? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yes. Yeah. Let's, let's talk a little bit more about Polkadot um, because I mean, you, you have really invested in a lot of Polkadot ventures, Polkadot itself, Kusama, Akala, Edward. Um, and so I wanted to hear a little bit more about how you don't view it as competitive, because I'm sure you're well aware there are many people in Ethereum who do view it as competitive. I don't know. Is it competitive or is it kind of cooperative, right? I view like Bitcoin, you know, you could, I guess it depends how you look at it, right? But like, I think how we should look at it is that projects that are pushing the space forward are only good for, you know, the existing, uh, you know, incumbents, right? Which I would say Bitcoin and Ethereum are. So, you know, like Ethereum, while it, it it's cut into the market share of Bitcoin, I would argue it's been very positive for Bitcoin, 
And Bitcoin wouldn't have the market cap that it has now if Ethereum wasn't around. Because Ethereum, all the innovation stuff, DeFi and NFTs that we've talked about, um, that's bringing new people to the space, it's really, it's, it's Ethereum. So I think we we should be open-minded about the fact in, in the Ethereum community that like there there could be something else that comes along. Could it cut into, if you're looking at the total pie of, uh, you know, smart contract platforms, could it cut into the pie? Yes, but I think it would grow the pie immensely and and potentially, um, you know, thinking about it as kind of a cooperative rather than competitive, I think is a more healthy way, you know, to, to look at this. But um, but yeah, I would say what what I like about um, Polkadot and and particularly like the, the radical approach to on-chain governance is this idea of uh, of like a 12-member council, right, that is making decisions. And, you know, there are, are great things about governance minimization. It makes it tough to change. Um, if you have a have like a product that just exists, it's a good approach. Um, and so it's good for something like a store of value like Bitcoin. Maybe it's good for like a, uh, a DEX that just works like Uniswap. Um, but if you're any type of product that like needs to rapidly evolve, that I think the, uh, you know, the hundred billion dollar question is how do you create some type of decentralized governance that can actually evolve? No one's really done that, right? Ethereum effectively has the same uh, governance as Bitcoin. It's been really slow to evolve. It's been able to evolve better than Bitcoin because Vitalik's the benevolent dictator who's still around and kind of rally, you know, the whole group, right? But um, I, I'm very excited about this idea of like a decentralized governance that, um, you know, gives power to token holders, but can evolve faster than, uh, you know, the, the governance minimization approach that we're, we're kind of seeing as commonplace in crypto today. And that's kind of the, the promise of something like Polkadot. And I think the, I think the Polkadot governance is wildly like unappreciated and un, unexplored. And I'm not saying it's like fully fleshed out and it, it's necessarily working great yet, but I think this idea of like, you know, voting in a council, the council can make decisions quick, but if the majority of token holders disagree with the decisions, they can vote against those decisions. So the, the council doesn't have unilateral power. I think that is a really powerful idea that's going to exist in some kind of way, shape or form in the future. And that's why I like that Polkadot's really bring something new to the, to the table that, that no one else in crypto is really doing. Yeah, I'm also hugely fascinated by these governance issues. And that's something I'm really keeping my eye on. But let's switch tax for a moment. I wanted to ask about Coinbase, because obviously, as we discussed, you were an, an early employee there. And I'm sure you're well aware, oftentimes in crypto, there's this comparison made between investments made at the protocol level and investments made in applications. And I was curious, as somebody who probably just experienced a nice little windfall from the Coinbase Direct listing, but who also has probably made a lot of money via tokens themselves, what's your take on that FAT protocol thesis? Can the earnings from applications still compete with the earnings from protocols? I, I think the upside is just greater uh, if you're if you're a cryptocurrency-based project. I think kind of what we've seen over the past, uh, you know, three months with even Coinbase's valuation, right? The fact that, uh, you know, 
Cardano again, not to, to bring it up again, but is uh, is valued more like I think you know has like a fifty percent higher valuation than Coinbase right now shows that for whatever reason this like new paradigm of crypto people think about value differently. Well, I, not for whatever reason. I think a big reason is that anyone can participate. You, so you have uh, a, just a bigger pie of potential investors, right? And that's a big piece of it. And yeah, I mean, the Coinbase uh, IPO was was great um, in the sense that for the people that pay attention to Wall Street and read the New York Times and care about that world, it was more validation for crypto. Um, but I, I think it wasn't that big of a deal uh, to crypto people. And I'm a crypto person, right? So um, like a token as a way to capture value is is kind of definitely the model that I believe in more. So, I mean, I, I, I haven't sold any of my Coinbase stock. Um, you know, I'm kind of believer in Coinbase as this utility for the ecosystem. But in terms of where I see upside, um, it's very much in the cryptocurrencies rather than you know, the, the, the companies that are trading on Wall Street. Okay. So maybe the FAT protocols thesis is still in place. Um, so as we discussed earlier, you've invested a lot in these various DeFi protocols. What sort of threat do you think DEXs and other decentralized applications or DeFi in general could pose to Coinbase eventually? Um, I think it's definitely um, a threat. I don't think it's a huge threat. I mean, it's a threat to Coinbase's crypto to crypto business, but the moat that Coinbase has is the regulatory moat, right? And the bridge to fiat currencies. And so DeFi um, is not going to be able to play there, uh, I don't think. I mean, there's been uh, initiatives. Um, I remember there was like an Omise Go one many years ago, but... um, I think there's still more money that's outside of crypto than in crypto and being a on-ramp to crypto is uh, is a good business. So, um I don't know. I like people in crypto it's, it's again it's this is like tribal nature that like Uniswap uh you know winning and Coinbase losing or something like that. Um but I think um, that's because people are, are, are tribal and, and competitive, but like it's more cooperative and, and collaborative. And um, and I think Dex is growing. I actually see is good for Coinbase because um, you know more people are, are getting utility out of cryptocurrency. That's going to bring more people in. That's good for the core Coinbase business model. So I don't know. Um, I've never viewed Coinbase as like a super innovative company that's like doing new products to push the space forward in a big way. It's just like this utility for the ecosystem that I think works really well. It's really valuable and it's, you know, good at executing. And um, I think there's certainly room for that to exist and, you know, DEXs to, to exist and thrive. All right. So um, let's kind of pull this all together just for the rest of the year. Obviously this Bull cycle has been super interesting because, uh, at least to my eyes, it has been driven by a few different things. Obviously, there's this um, trend with Bitcoin being taken up by institutions in a big way. 
um, as we've discussed, NFTs taking off amongst normies. And then DeFi kind of had its moment, but, uh, you know, the gas fees kind of limit, you know, who can participate in that. And, you know, for whatever other trend you want to pull together, where do you see the rest of this year going? Which I think most people would say they're expecting, you know, this bull cycle to last kind of through that period. Yeah, I'm not sure about the cycle. And, uh, you know, I, I always say, like, I'm not a trader. I'm not good at timing markets. But I could tell you the types of new products that I'm most excited about that I think we could see an explosion in are what I call DeFi and NFTs for the masses, right? I think, as you alluded to, and we, we talked about um, the fees on Ethereum right now uh, for vast majority of uh, Ethereum uh, applications price out the masses, right? It's like, it's still mostly rich people and crypto rich. And um, and I think that uh, needs to change. I think, and, and I think that's going to change once we see applications on new chains and we see layer twos really thriving. And so I'm really excited about, uh, you know, people being able to make a Uniswap trade for $100, right? And, and buy $100 worth of Ethereum really easily. Um, you know, people buying a $100 or a $50 NFT on OpenSea within a game. Things like that, I think, is likely to be the next leg up for crypto, whether that happens in the next six months or, you know, it takes a couple of years. Uh, I'm not sure. But for, for us, that's what we're kind of going to be uh, investing in over the next several years. And I think it's it's a good uh, long-term bet. And then earlier when you were talking about Polkadot and the governance, I was curious also for your take on certain things that a lot of people are interested in, but haven't really taken off yet, but you think you know, will in the future. And I wondered if DAOs was one of them and if there's anything else that you see on the horizon that you want to mention, I'd like to hear what you're seeing there and where you think it'll go. Yeah, I think DAOs, um, DAOs are already happening, right? And I think there's a lot of people that have like uh, kind of anointed DAOs as the next thing after uh, DeFi and NFTs, right? I don't know. I mean, I'm not super bullish on that um, as DAOs being like, a thing that really brings in new people. Um, I think DAOs like, uh, you know, on-train treasuries, you know, are happening and voting uh, on how to allocate funds on an on-train treasury, that's happening for many Ethereum projects and Polkadot projects now. Um, I think an open question is like, will there be a product or a tool that makes it easy for anyone to spin up their own DAO, you know, for anything? And that's something that I've been, excited about but it, it there, there's there's challenges with it so yeah i don't know i i'm bullish on DAO, right anyone who's in cryptocurrency is like bitcoin was the first DAO. any truly decentralized cryptocurrency is is in effect a DAO. um i'd love to see an explosion of DAOs. i haven't seen any product that uh you know is enabling that i guess another category that I'm very excited about um, that I think we will see in the next five years, I don't know, it's going to be one year or five years, is decentralized uh, media, right? And NFTs itself is kind of a version of decentralized media. You know, we, we all see the, the issues with uh, the, the centralized uh, social media companies, for example. Can someone kind of crack the code, if you will, and create a product that people really want to use because of the product, not just because of the 
uh, you know, investment opportunity, right? And, you know, we've seen things like Steam in the past and, you know, BitClout now, which is trying to like bootstrap this thing by uh, getting people excited from speculation. And um, I'm not super bullish on that. I'm more bullish on like something crypto native that the crypto community really, uh, you know, gets behind from a product perspective and that's something new and different that that ultimately, uh, you know, the whole world uses. I think that will happen like in the next five years. I don't think we've seen, I don't think it's been built yet. All right. Okay. Well, this has been such a fascinating discussion. I'm so glad we were able to connect. Where can people yeah. learn more about you and your work? Yeah, I guess just go to oneconfirmation.com. That's our site. Uh, One Confirmation on Twitter. Uh, I'm also NT Money on Twitter. Um, follow uh, Richard Chen as well, uh, my partner, uh, Richard Chen39 uh, on Twitter. And uh, yeah, that's about it. All right, great. Well, thanks so much for coming on Unchained. Thanks, Laura. It was fun. I appreciate you. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Nick and One Confirmation, check out the show notes for this episode. Sign up for my newsletter to get the top crypto news of the day and to find out how to pre-order my book, The Cryptopians, Idealism, Greed, Lies, and the Making of the First Big Cryptocurrency Craze. You can sign up right on the homepage at unchainedpodcast.com. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, and Mark Murdoch. Thanks for listening. 